Well, Seth said, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors, and I'm part of our preaching team, and uh, was part of the team that helped start uh, this church that uh, we're all part of right now. Uh, we started in 2009. Um, in 2009, when we launched, we were launched, uh, and our name was Second Mile Church. Uh, we were a church plant. We were a daughter church of a church that had been started in 1991 called East Valley Bible Church. So East Valley Bible Church, 1991, Second Mile Church, 2009. Uh, if you're going, well, how come it doesn't say Second Mile Church anymore? Uh, it's because in 2011, us with East Valley Bible and a church in Tempe called Praxis, we all merged together uh, to become a redemption church. So that's kind of the history of that. Uh, but the decision was made at East Valley Bible Church in 1991 that has kind of, that we inherited as a kind of daughter church from them that we've kept. And it's something that they got questions about and it's something that we get questions about. We get these questions at our newcomer kind of uh, start here type class or our rooted class, our membership stuff. Uh, people will often say, you know what? There's something weird about this church. You t well, there's a lot weird about this church. But, like, but, but they'll say, you know, why do you take communion every week and you basically never pass an offering plate. How come you do that? Now, we do sometimes pass an offering plate. We often do on Christmas Eve. We're taking kind of a special offering that day, and so we often pass the plate then. But yeah, as a normal kind of way of doing things, we have mailboxes there in the back, and uh, those of you who give, you give there and you give online, but we don't typically pass the plate. But we do celebrate communion every week. Now, if you're from a Catholic background, that doesn't seem strange to you. You can't imagine gathering for church and not having communion every week. But in the non-denominational world, especially in 1991, a church that didn't take an offering but took communion every week. That seems strange. And people ask, well, why do you do that? And, and the reason is uh, when East Valley Bible Church was, was starting in 1991, they kind of went, you know what? We want to do music. We want to do preaching. We probably are going to have to do some announcements and inform some people of some stuff. And then there's only about, you know, five to seven minutes left in the service. How do we want to spend it? Do we want to spend that time passing the offering plate, or do we want to spend that time more specifically remembering Jesus? And they said, you know what, let's specifically remember Jesus, and so that's why we do that. And so uh, here at our church, we celebrate communion every week, and we talk about it a little bit every week. I mean, we kind of introduce it sort of each time, but what I've realized is I've kind of gone back through the years of our history. We've never actually done a sermon on communion. We've never said, here's what it is. Here's why we do it. Here's what this represents. Here's what this means. And it's just interesting to me that here's this thing, we all do it every week, and we've never really gone in depth as to what it means and why it's so important. So that's what we're going to try to do today. This is the last message in our series, Truth We Can Touch. We kicked this off with the idea that Jesus, when he came, when God came near, he didn't come as an idea. He didn't come as a philosophy. He didn't even just come in written words. He came as a person. He came embodied. He came in the incarnation. And he gave us a faith that in so many ways is very physical. We physically gather. We assemble together. That's what it is to be the church. We saw last week that we physically practice baptism, this ceremony that pictures that our old person is dead and our new person is alive in Christ. And today, we're looking at communion. You know, it's interesting. We don't have a moment in the service where we go, all right, everybody, on the count of three, I want everyone to remember Jesus. Are you ready? One, two, three. Are you remembering him? Or we don't do that. What do we do? We say, hey, let's eat together. Let's drink together. It's a physical thing. 
And so that's what we're looking at is, is this truth we can touch. And we're borrowing that title from this book by Tim Chester. It's a really great book. I highly recommend it. Truth We Can Touch, How Baptism and Communion Shape Our Lives. And there's a, a number of things uh, in today's message that are going to kind of come straight out of this book. And I just want to let you know, I want to, you know, give credit where credit is due on that. So um, today's going to be, I think, a lot of fun. I think you're going to learn some stuff. I think there's actually going to be some things that maybe you didn't know or hadn't thought of before when we look at the story of the Bible, when we look at even church history. And so uh, are you ready to learn something today? Yeah. I mean, you didn't come to church just to be told what you already knew, right? Yeah. You want to learn something. So that's what we're going to do. So let's pray and we will get to it. Father, uh, we invite your presence here now. And God, even as we say that, we, we know you're already here. And so what we really mean is that we are welcoming you. We welcome you with us. And we thank you that you're with us right now by the Spirit. And uh, we anticipate this moment that we'll have in a little while where we eat the bread and drink from the cup and we experience your presence in an even a more profound way. So God, help us uh, to understand what we're doing in that. Uh, give us a, a taste for your goodness through it. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we've got a series of questions. The first one is, what is communion? Just what is it? Uh, what is it communion? Sometimes we call it the Lord's Supper. Sometimes we call it communion. I may use that interchangeably. It's the same thing. But here's what communion is. Here's a definition. Communion is the physical meal that signifies that Jesus has made a covenant to nourish us with his presence and forgive us of sin until he comes again. Let me read that again. Communion is the physical meal that signifies that Jesus has made a covenant to nourish us with his presence and forgive us of sin until he comes again. Let's just break that definition down a little bit. First, communion is the physical meal. Again, Jesus doesn't just say, I will be with you, though he does say that, the end of the Great Commission in Matthew 28. He says, behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He doesn't just tell us that he's going to be with us. He actually gives us a tangible experience of his presence with us. And this experience comes in physical ways, ways that can be tasted, ways that can be smelled, ways that can be seen with your eyes. Right? Think about the power of taste. Like when I, when I taste a twice-baked potato, it doesn't just taste like a delicious, cheesy twice-baked potato. It tastes like home because that was part of the meal my mom would make before every big game when I was growing up. Right, or smell. Think about the power of smell. When I smell orange blossoms, they smell like spring break. So I remember being a Colorado kid and coming to Phoenix during spring break and smelling those orange blossoms. They're like, oh man, that's incredible. Some of you know the power of smell. You know how, you know, just the, the smell of a loved one, just the, the, the memories that that evokes, right? Think about the things that you see, certain colors that just light up, right? Like, like I look in the sky and I see the orange and blue and it's like, yes, God, I praise you. You're a Broncos fan too. And it's just amazing to see all these different. And so, so God has given us this physical experience, this physical meal that next signifies that Jesus has made a covenant. Bapti or, I'm sorry, communion is signifying Jesus' covenant with us. Now, when we think about the, the, the cup, you know, the wine or the juice, oftentimes people, if you said, hey, what does this represent? People would say, well, that represents the blood. And that's not exactly wrong, but it's not most right. Most accurately, what that cup represents is a covenant, 
In all the descriptions of Jesus initiating the Lord's Supper in the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in all three of them, he talks about this being a covenant. In Luke, he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Mark records it this way, this is my blood of the covenant. Matthew records it this way, drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. In 1 Corinthians 11.25, as the Apostle Paul is recounting this story in verse 25, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This isn't just bread and wine. It's not just matzah and juice. It's more than that. It's significant. It's signifying a covenant. Now, we might just sort of think, oh, it's just this, it's just this. But, but think about it. Certain things that are pretty ordinary in a different context become transformative. So here's what I want you to do for just a moment, uh, if you would. Uh, please, everyone, raise your right hand, just right where you're sitting. Raise your right hand. And I'd like you to repeat after me. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. <laughs> no, keep going, come on. And will to the best of my ability, will, best of my ability preserve, protect, and defend, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Do any of you think you just became president? <laughs> no, why? Why? Because they're just words. Right, you say those words, those words don't have any power, but said by the right person, in the right context, on the right day, those same words actually have the power to transform the person. They change reality. This person goes from being someone that has a lot of big ideas to someone who can now command armies. You go, well, it's just words. Yeah, but it's just words in a context. The same thing's true with communion. It's just bread. It's just juice. But in this context, it has the power to transform you. It is sacred. It is communicating a covenant. This is why communion is not just big church snack time. Right? Uh, sometimes you'll have little kids and, and uh, you know, normally they're in class and they have their, you know, they get their uh, vanilla wafers or they get their, you know, goldfish at a... Uh, at Redemption Tempe, they give them carrots. I'm like, who, who wants carrots? Give them goldfish, right? But, uh, but they have snack time, right? And so sometimes they'll come into the big service. They'll come to the big church, and they'll see the, the, the community elements. They'll be like, oh, is that your snack? And you know what? It makes sense if you just think about it from their context, but it's not just snack. And the, there's a reason why you don't, and I think you shouldn't, say, yeah, why don't you go ahead and eat it? is because, yeah, it's just bread and juice. I mean, you can go buy matzah and welches at Costco. But you don't do it because in this context, it means something more. It means a covenant. You know, historically, a baptism was the sign that represented the entrance into the covenant. The baptism was like a wedding. And then communion was like the covenant renewal. It was like the date night. It was like the celebrating your anniversary. You already entered into the covenant, but it was this kind of covenant renewal. It was this reminder, yes, here's who I am in Christ. And so that's why historically what's happened is historically in the church, a people have not celebrated communion until after they've been baptized. Now, that's not something that we, you know, walk around and make a huge deal about, but, but I, I still think that's appropriate. In fact, that's why, like, for, for my kids, right, I have some kids that attend a service, and they take communion because they've been baptized. 
other kids that don't take communion yet because they've not yet been baptized. And that's not like, well, one is loved and one is not. But it's saying, hey, this is a covenant. This is significant. And parents, I think it's a good idea to have your kids wait, to, to encourage the faith that's developing in them, to celebrate it, and then to let it mature and let it grow. And as they really enter into that covenant by faith, then they get to participate in this practice of communion. So what is communion? It's the physical meal that signifies that Jesus has made a covenant to nourish us with his presence and forgive us of sin. This nourishment and this forgiveness are very evident in these two things that we eat and drink together. The nourishment reminds us of the manna from heaven. The manna was the bread that God provided when the people of Israel were wandering in the desert to nourish them, to feed them. And it's no surprise then that when Jesus shows up, what does he say? He says, I am the bread of life. And this bread, when we eat it, is to remind us, this unleavened bread is to remind us, yes, Jesus is my nourishment. Jesus is my fuel. Jesus is my power. Jesus is my holiness. Jesus is my righteousness. Jesus is my life. He nourishes us and he forgives us. This blood of the covenant does evoke the blood of the Passover lamb. That It was the Passover lamb that allowed the people of Israel to get out of slavery and into a promised land. And it was this blood of the Passover lamb that, that made the, where the angel of death would pass over and the people would experience freedom. And so when Jesus shows up, what do they call him? John the Baptist says, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. These are physical elements that signify a covenant that God is committed in Christ to nourish us with his presence and to forgive us of sin until he comes again. This is the phrase that has struck me as I've been preparing this message is it seems like there's a time limit on communion. In 1 Corinthians 11.26, Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Mark 14, Jesus is Jesus talking. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So there seems to be this until Think about this. We will not celebrate communion forever. Someday we'll have the wedding supper of the Lamb. Someday we'll have the feast that this has all been pointing to. And that takes us to the next question, which is why a meal? Why a meal? I mean, think about it. God could have made it where he picked some other kind of physical thing. Right? He could have said, hey, when you're together, I want you to jump and down, up and down to remind yourself that heaven's up there and you're down here and you need my help. I mean, aren't you glad he didn't do that? All right, everybody, here's the jumping part of our service. But think about it. Like, why a meal? He could have picked anything. Why that? Well, the first reason is because meals are about friendship. Meals aren't just about food. They're about friendship. Tim Chester writes, think what an invitation to dinner means. It's more than an invitation to food. It's an invitation to friendship. The Lord's Supper is an invitation to friendship with Christ. So why a meal? Because meals are about friendship, but also because the Bible is a story of meals. Do some of you 
have this weird thing like I do where you kind of remember like your life and history and stories and where you went based on what you ate? How, oh, how, you guys went to San Diego. How was it? Oh, it was amazing. We tried tacos from every different place. The taco stand, Encinitas best. Oh, yeah. How was this? Oh, oh, the cookies. Right? Some of you, like, when you think about the holidays and you kind of go, if I have any traditions at all, it's, it's like, how many of you know, you know exactly what you're going to eat on Christmas Eve? Yeah. How many of you are like, I can't believe I have to eat that again, but my mom's making it and she thinks it's good and you know, don't, don't, don't raise your hand, please. But meals are like such a, meals are such a big deal to us, right? Like w- meals, they mean so much, they signify so much, they're so much caught up as part of our memory. And here's what I want to tell you today, that's biblical. That's biblical. Here's what I want to do in these next few moments, and I think this is actually really fun, I think it's pretty interesting, is, is to, to look at the history of the Bible in 13 meals. You actually can trace the biblical story through food. Praise God, hallelujah, amen. All right, so here's 13 meals that tell the story of the Bible. The first one is creation and the menu for mankind, the story of God's generosity. In Genesis 2, God has made every tree of the garden, and he says, you can eat of this. Go crazy. Eat everything you want. I have so much abundance. I have so much provision. This is the story of God's generosity, that God has made us, and God knows what's best for us, and God provides us lots of good things to enjoy. God is not holding out on us. But the lie that was involved in the second meal was that God was holding out on us. The second meal is the fall and another menu. It's the story of humanity's sin. Genesis 3, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And instead of thinking about all the good food that God provided, they want the one thing that God said, hey, don't eat that. They pick a different menu. Right, this is like those of you that put steak, or I'm I'm sorry, that put ketchup on steak. What is wrong? Or like I think about my kids. Like my kids, it's like, would you like a ribeye or a peanut butter and jelly? They're like, peanut butter and jelly. And you're like, you are not smart. But someday, someday you'll figure this out, right? But that's the exchange we make. That's the trade. We go, God, you've provided all this stuff. We don't want that. We want a different menu. Give me the, give me the kids' menu. Here's the third meal in the Bible that's significant is the Passover, the story of God's redemption. We've already referred to it, but the people of Israel were in in Egypt and they were there for 400 years and they were enslaved and God commanded them as the last thing that they were to do before they exited uh, Egypt into a promised land is he commanded them to have a meal, to make unleavened bread to signify that there wasn't time for the dough to rise. We were in a hurry. And to eat a Passover lamb, an unblemished male lamb whose bones could not be broken, whose blood would be poured out over the door, and who had to be eaten. And in so doing, the people of God were set free and and delivered and rescued. And then, not only that, but the people of God were to commemorate and eat this meal every year. There's a whole liturgy, there's a whole tradition, there's a whole way of eating this Passover meal. It was to be an identity-forming meal to show you generations later, here's who we are as the people of God. 
There's a fourth meal. We've alluded to this too, the manna from heaven. As the people of Israel wander around the desert and they uh, don't go into the promised land because they don't trust that God really is for them, that lie of Genesis 3 is still around. And they start to grumble. They complain. They go, God, we had it so much better in Egypt. At least in Egypt we had bread. At least in Egypt we had meat. And so what does God do? He provides manna, this weird bread-like, wafer-like substance. And they had to go out and they had to collect it each day. And if they collected more than a day's worth, like fill up their Tupperware with more than a day's worth, it would all get, get sour and go bad. Which makes sense then if Jesus teaching us to pray, how does he teach us? He says, give us this day our daily bread. But the way that God provided for his people, even when they were grumbling, even when they were whining, was manna. And then the fifth meal is a meal on the mountain. This is an easy one to miss, but it's in Exodus chapter 24. And God has delivered the people out of Egypt. He's given them the law. And then what he does is he invites the 70 elders of Israel to come up with Moses onto the mountain. And it says in verse 11 of chapter 24, they beheld God and ate and drank. Chester writes, this is the epitome of divine grace, a meal in the presence of God. God doesn't just boom from the mountain, but he invites them up to eat a meal in his presence. That's the story of God's covenant. The covenant that God makes with us is a story to be, it's a covenant to be with us. Sixth meal is the bread of the presence. As God gives instructions for the tabernacle and for the temple, he says, hey, I want you to have some food in there because I'm a God who likes meals. And so they make the bread of the presence. It's this story of God's presence. And it was to be in the tabernacle, which was the place that heaven met earth. It was the place where God dwelt. And this bread of the presence could also be translated the bread of the face. This bread communicated that when this bread's there, God's there. And three times a year at the feasts of Passover and Pentecost and the Feast of Tabernacles, the priest would get the bread of the presence and he'd bring it out to the people and he would lift it up in front of the people and he would say, behold, God's love for you. Isn't that a picture of communion? The bread of the presence of God lifted before you saying, behold, God's love for you. No wonder We remember the Lord through a meal. The seventh meal is uh, what Chester calls the true happy meal, the story of God's home. In Deuteronomy 27, and man, this is all over the place in the the Old Testament, there's all this description about the land that they're going to go into. And how does God describe the land? He uses food. What does he say? This is a land flowing with milk and honey. That's going to be the picture of God's provision, of God's home, of God's grace, is that you're going to eat milk and honey. It's even sometimes going to taste good. And then there's an eighth meal, which is really no meal at all. It's the exile and famine, the story of God's judgment. It's warned of in Deuteronomy 28. God says, if you don't keep this covenant, if you don't obey me, if you don't follow me, then all these curses are going to come upon you. And one of those curses is there's going to be famine and you're going to be driven away from this land of milk and honey into a land that is not your own, into exile. And this is the ultimate tragedy, isn't it? People who were made to eat in the presence of God are suddenly banned from the presence of God. And get this, this is our fate without Jesus' intervention. 
banished because of our sin because we can't keep the law. We can't keep the covenant. We need a covenant keeper to come keep it for us. But that's not the end of the story. And the prophets begin to talk. And they say, hey, we know you've experienced these meals, but we want to tell you about a meal that's coming. Isaiah in particular tells us about this. This another meal on the mountain, the story of God's promised feast. Uh, Some years ago, I was invited to this uh, kind of a pastor's gathering. It was hosted by this church in Salt Lake City. And uh, we were kind of talking about the Bible and culture and theology and processing a bunch of different stuff. And uh, this church had this like really core volunteer couple. And she was like the top food blogger for all of Salt Lake City. So she knew all the restaurateurs and all the best, you know, cocktail designers and all the different, you know, purveyors of different stuff. And so she kind of leaned in on all them and said, hey, we've got this group of pastors and they're coming to town and they'd really like some of your best food and wine and beer. And they were like, wait, pastors drink beer? We're in, you know, like it was that kind of a thing. And, uh, and so e- each meal was kind of different people that she was connected to would come in and they would explain what they were doing and we would pray for them and it was kind of really cool. And so this one kind of, the, the kind of last night of it, uh, this, this chef who was like one of the best chefs in all of Salt Lake City, uh, he said, hey, I, uh, I made for you this duck confit. I never had duck confit. I barely know how to say it. Do you know what duck confit is? It's duck cooked in its own fat, which means it's stinking great. It's amazing, right? And so, so we're, and this was not like a, hey, go through the line kind of and get your food. This was like, it was served. It was on the table. There were candles. It was incredible. And we're all sitting there and we're like ready to pray and dive into the duck confit. And the pastor who was hosting this gathering, he said, hey, before we eat this, I want us to know and remember There are people all over the world not eating like this tonight. And rather than feeling bad about that, we want to eat this with gratitude because this is a picture of the coming feast of the new kingdom. And then he read Isaiah 25. He said, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of full of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And then he took his glass and he said, to the king. And I felt like I was in like Braveheart or something. It was like the greatest thing. And to the king. This is how you should eat on Christmas Eve, on Christmas Day. To the king. Because it's a picture of a coming kingdom, a promised feast that's not just for the people of Israel, but that's for all nations. And so if that's the promise of the prophets, then it makes sense that when Jesus shows up, what does he do? He eats and drinks. 
Which takes us to a tenth meal, Levi's party, the story of God's grace. Jesus is walking and he sees this guy, Levi. He's a tax collector. He's hated by Jews. He's hated by everybody. And he says, hey, I want to go to your house and I want to show grace to you and I want you to you know, take care of this party. And so he does. And all these people are there and they start to murmur among each other and say, why do you eat and drink with these tax collectors and sinners? You know, this is what Jesus was called, was a drunk and a glutton. Did you know that? Jesus had such a reputation for eating meals with outcast, sinner, loser people that they called, oh, he's just a drunk, he's just a glutton. So don't you love it that the guy who was constantly called a drunk and a glutton, when he picks the symbols that we're going to remember him by, what does he pick? Food and drink. Love it. The 11th meal is the feeding of the 5,000. It's a story of God's future. There's thousands of people there. They don't have food. They don't have provision. And Jesus takes just a few loaves and some fish, and he feeds thousands and thousands of people. And it says in verse 17, and they ate and were satisfied. That is the picture of the kingdom of God. They were satisfied in the presence of Jesus. Which brings us to the Lord's Supper, the whole story in one meal. All of that manna and all of that Passover lamb and all of that provision taking care of all of that sin. And a picture of the last meal, the marriage supper of the lamb, the story of creation redeemed. This is Revelation 19. This is when heaven meets earth and this is when communion stops and instead of spiritually being in the presence of Jesus, we're physically in the presence of Jesus. And instead of just eating a little bit as a picture of the coming feast, we're feasting with Jesus, right? There's a thing in our family, like when we have something that's like really, really, really good, we'll go, this is going to be at the wedding supper. I mean, just think about the wedding supper. It is going to be barbecue ribs, and tamales. Everything's going to be covered in Chick-fil-A sauce. <laughs> Duck confit. Coke Zero. A lot of Coke Zero. I mean, it's just going to be amazing, right? And, and all of that is this picture of life with God. Why a meal? What else could Jesus pick? This is the whole Bible. It's a story of meals. And a story of eating and drinking and enjoying the presence of God. Which brings us to our last question, which is what is happening when we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Okay, we know what it is. We know what it means and represents. We, we know kind of where it came from. Why, why did he pick this? But what's happening? Like what is actually taking place when we celebrate the Lord's Supper? There's three things that are happening. The first is we are remembering and proclaiming Jesus' death. We're remembering and proclaiming Jesus' death. In 1 Corinthians 11, in verse 24, uh, he says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25, the cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So part of what we're doing when we celebrate the Lord's Supper is we are remembering Jesus. We're also proclaiming, though, because in verse 26, it says, for as often as you eat this bread, drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So what we're doing, again, we're not just eating and drinking matzah and grape juice. We are remembering Christ. We are remembering his sacrifice for us. And we are proclaiming that this death is what gives us life. 
that it was Jesus' death that gives us nourishment and forgiveness. That's what we're proclaiming. This, by the way, is why we'll often say when we do community together, we'll say, listen, if you're not a follower of Jesus, please just let the elements kind of pass by. Not because we want to in any way heap judgment on anybody, but here's what we're saying. Part of what communion is, is you proclaiming that Jesus is your life. And so get this, if Jesus is not your life, we're glad you're here. But to proclaim that by eating and drinking when you don't believe in it, that, that, you don't want to do that. That's the first thing we're doing. We're remembering and proclaiming Jesus' death. The second thing we're doing is we are experiencing Christ's presence. And here's where it starts to get a little more interesting and a lot more controversial. We're experiencing Christ's presence. A place to see this pretty clearly is 1 Corinthians 10, so the chapter before where Paul summed everything up. In chapter 10, verse 16, here's what he says. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Now, this word participation, it's the Greek word koinonia. It means a close relationship. It means a fellowship. It means communion. It means sharing. It has this idea of when, when we are together, we're experiencing koinonia, participation. We are connected to one another. It's a very physical kind of word. It's not a feeling. It's a, it's a physical dynamic. And so what the Apostle Paul's saying is, when we drink of this cup, we are participating in the blood of Christ. We're participating in the body of Christ. So this has led people throughout all of church history to go, okay, this seems to be talking about the, there's a presence of Jesus in the Lord's Supper. What does this mean? What does this look like? How is Jesus present? How is Jesus participating? What, what does this mean? And so I want to share with you four different things through church history. Ready for a little church history? We don't go here a lot, but it's kind of fun. The first one is the Roman Catholic approach. Some of you grew up in this tradition and you're familiar with it. The Roman Catholic tradition would say that the bread and wine become the body of Christ. The fancy word for this is transubstantiation. So the substance transforms. The idea here is that the bread and wine actually cease to exist and are replaced by the actual body and blood of Jesus. This is why if you go to a Roman Catholic uh, service, if you're part of a Roman Catholic tradition, the centerpiece of all of it, it's not the preaching, it's not the singing, it's the mass. That's the heartbeat of it. That's the key thing. I knew a girl in college who would uh, go to uh, the Mass in a language she didn't even speak just so she could have the bread and the cup, which actually kind of reveals one of the problems with this view. See, if, if this is really true, that in eating the bread and, and drinking from the cup, that that actually is the body and blood of Jesus, that you're taking Jesus into you, then you don't even need faith for it to work. It, it's like taking medicine, right? You don't have to believe in Advil for Advil to help your headache. If you take it, it will help you. And, and so, so that's a little bit of a problem. The other problem is that this is really saying that when we celebrate the Mass, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, in a sense what we're doing is we're re-sacrificing Jesus. And so the question is, do, do the communion elements represent Jesus or do they re-present Jesus? on the cross again. 
And, and the reason we don't believe that that's what's happening is because Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. But what the Catholic, the Roman Catholic view is trying to do is take seriously 1 Corinthians 10, 16. It's also trying to take seriously John 6, where Jesus talks about, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. I think there's a misinterpretation of it there, but that's what they're trying to do. So this is a good faith effort, but this is not where we land as a church, the Roman Catholic view. Another view that's pretty similar to it, but different enough, I guess, is the Lutheran view. So Martin Luther was the Protestant reformer, and he said, no, 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 it's not that the bread and wine become the body of Christ, it's that Christ is physically present in, with, and around the bread and the wine. So this is called consubstantiation. So it doesn't trans, the substance doesn't transform, that, that God is, is, the substance is with you. And this is strongly, again, depending on Jesus saying, this is my body. What did Jesus mean? This is my body. And so what Luther said was that, uh, that, that Jesus was there. Jesus really was there, but he was invisible. That kind of his omnipresence after he ascended had kicked in and he was able to kind of be there. Interestingly, I think uh, Martin Luther rejected the Roman Catholic view, not because he thought it was too superstitious, but because he thought it was too rational. Think about this. The rational thing is to go, well, if I'm going to get God in me, I got to have the literal God in me. And he said, no, 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 that's too rational. Let's live with some mystery here. So Jesus is here, but he's kind of in and around and with the elements. So that was the Lutheran approach. Ulrich Zwingli came along and said, no, y'all are all wrong. You're way over reading this. It's just supposed to be a remembrance. He said the bread and wine are to remind us of Christ's death. Remembrance was the idea for Zwingli. Uh, and he emphasizes in Luke twenty-two nineteen and in 1 Corinthians 11, where it says, do this in remembrance of me. Zwingli said, what do you mean? Jesus had a human body. This human body was not omnipresent. It was limited as a human body by time and space. So to say that Jesus is now somehow everywhere is actually distorting your understanding of the humanity of Jesus. And so this is not what communion is about. Communion is just to remember. It's a memorial and it's a kind of pledge of allegiance. It's our committing ourselves to Jesus. And the fourth view, historically, was John Calvin. And Calvin said that Christ is spiritually present at communion through the Holy Spirit. Calvin believed that at communion, heaven and earth are connecting because we are believing in Christ and the Spirit is present and God is with us in a special way in communion by His Spirit. So this is called real spiritual presence. It's the idea that in communion, in a, in a kind of extra dose sort of way, that God is really with us by His presence. What do you think? Well, at Redemption, the way we've kind of done it is really said, you know, those last two both make a lot of sense. The, the, the first two seem like you got to do some gymnastics to make that work. But the second two, they both make sense. Communion clearly is to be a remembrance of Jesus, isn't it? I mean, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Of course, he must have meant that. And it seems if, if uh, we are participating in the body of blood of Jesus and Jesus is with us in that way, then we go, okay, then he's with us by his spirit. It makes total sense that his spirit would be with us. And so we don't have to pick. 
Are we supposed to remember him or enjoy his presence, right? This is like in a few days, they're going to say, do you want apple pie or pecan? And you say, yes, <laughs> right? Do you want to remember Jesus or experience his presence by the spirit? Yes. This is why, by the way, sometimes when our pastors are up here introducing communion, sometimes they'll emphasize the remember part. Other times they'll emphasize the presence part because we think both of those are okay. And, and, and it's really, the, the way I kind of grew up understanding communion was mostly the remembrance. And I got to say that thinking about Christ with me by the Spirit has made communion in this last year for me electric. Because it's not just about me trying to muster up enough something to remember well. But it's actually Jesus coming near. So when I grab the communion elements, I imagine in my mind's eye that Jesus is handing these to me. And he's saying, you bring your history and sin. I'll bring the bread and wine. And all the drinks are on me. This is my embrace. You know, we celebrated our 20th anniversary this week and I wrote an email to you, some of you that get our weekly email about kissing in front of your kids and so we've been kissing in front of our kids uh, for fun. And uh, <laughs> somehow or another it came up that, uh, I don't remember if Hank or Mary, they said something about Jesus and yeah, but Jesus didn't have a wife and I said, yes, he did. And they were like, Jesus did not have a wife, Dad. Like, we have been to Sunday school. We have not heard anything about Jesus' wife. What are you talking about? Jesus had a wife. He didn't have a wife. I said, yeah, he did. The church. And listen, Jesus is not a polygamist. He has one bride, the church. And they said, well, that'd be weird if Jesus kissed the church. And it hit me. I said, you know what? He did. That's the bread. That's the cup. It's the kiss of Christ. It's the embrace of Christ. It's the presence of Jesus by the Spirit reminding us that He's our nourishment and He's our forgiveness and He's our hope and He's our life. And finally, that we're one in Him. What else do we do? What does communion mean? It means that we participate in the one body of Christ. We are one in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 10, 17, after he talks about the participation in the body and blood, he says, because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, and we all partake of the one bread. Baptism is the physical meal that signifies that Jesus has made a covenant to nourish us and to forgive us until he comes again. Not just you, not just me, us. We are the church. And Jesus gave himself for us, which is why one of the things that's important when we take communion is that we are reconciled with one another. The whole reason Paul's talking about this in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 is because they are not practicing unity as they celebrate the Lord's Supper. Some people are getting hammered. Some people are eating and drinking and not waiting for everyone else. Other people aren't even getting the bread and wine because everyone else has taken it for themselves already. Paul's rebuking them in this whole section. He's saying, we're one body. He says, this is actually, this is, this is amazing. He says, this is actually why some of you are getting sick and dying. Wow. 
That's one of the warnings we don't give a lot from the stage. (laughs) Celebrating communion may lead to sickness and death. If you do it with pride and arrogance and broken relationships and unrepentant sin, this could kill you, Paul says. Why? Because it's for us. We're one body. We're part of one bride. We're united at one table around one Savior and one Lord who died once and for all for the forgiveness of our sins. We're going to take communion in just a few moments, and I hope that like like it is for me, I hope it just feels more alive to you than ever. We're going to do it just like we always do it. We're not going to do anything fancy or new. But here's what I want you to know. Jesus came near to us. And Jesus is now here with us by his spirit as we trust in him by faith. And he is giving us this gift week after week after week after week to help us remember who he is, to enjoy his presence so that he would be our life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of the Lord's Supper and thank you for Jesus. Thank you for how he has given himself to cleanse us of sin, to purify us from unrighteousness, to bring us to you, to make us your children. God, we thank you for that. And we pray that as we eat and as we drink, we would experience in a fresh way your kiss, your embrace, your affection, your delight in us. God, not because we bring anything particularly holy or righteous to the table. We're a lot like Adam and Eve eating the other fruit. We're a lot like the people of Israel wandering in the desert and complaining. But you've come near. You're a friend of sinners. So we eat and drink to the King. Amen.